Good morning, man. We are just so excited to be in God's house today. I just want to say a quick shout out to all those who are joining us online and definitely a huge shout out to the Grayson campus. I love you so, so much. But hey, listen, before we go any further, I want to do just a couple things. I want to give a little honor today. Listen, kids camp happened this past week. It happened in a big, big way. Come on now. It was absolutely incredible. For all of our volunteers and team members, man, what joy it was to get to serve your kids. But I just wanna honor a few people. Listen, you, I get to see a lot of the back end of what goes into a kid's camp. My wife is our kids director and Grayson, Emily, and, and then you have Tara and Angie and then Jesse. Listen, the work that they put in to make kids camp happen, can we just honor them today with our praise just a little bit, say thank you. Not only honor them, but then also to honor all of our volunteers that loved your kids, that connected with your kids this week. One more time, can we lift it all up? Thank you, thank you, thank you to our volunteers. Man, what a fun week that it was, and we are thankful uh, that we got to just invest into our families in this whole entire region. But let's begin today with just a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for bringing us into your house And Lord, we are excited for what you are gonna do today, God, through your word. And Lord, we pray that our hearts and our minds would be open today to receive it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Listen, one of my absolute favorite hobbies is to grab a bowl of popcorn and sit down and watch a movie with my beautiful wife. Now, there's a particular type of movies that we like to watch, or I like to watch, and I just con her into it. I love to see every January what the Oscars Best Picture nomination list is. And then I will try over the course of those two months to watch as many of those Oscar Best Picture nominations as possible. Here is the sad truth to that reality. Most are terrible, absolutely terrible. I need a new hobby. But every now and then, you will find some that are really really good. And if you look at past winners, you'll see that there are some really, really good Best Picture nomination winners. Well, one that really sparked my interest over the past couple years that made it on the Best Picture list in 2021 was a movie called Don't Look Up. Now, here is the film synopsis, and I'll read it here from our notes. It says, two low-level astronomers must go on a giant media tour to warn mankind of an approaching comet that will destroy planet Earth. Kate, an an astronomy grad student and her professor, Dr. Randall Mindy, make an astounding discovery of a comet orbiting within the solar system. The problem is that it's on a direct collision course with Earth. The other problem, no one really seems care. Turns out warning mankind about a planet killer the size of Mount Everest is an inconvenient fact to navigate. With the help of scientists, Kate and Randall embark on a media tour that takes them from the office of an indifferent president to the airwaves of all forms of media to the scholars of academia. Getting the response, do we really know that there is even a comet Are we 100% sure that we're all going to die if this thing hits? 
With only six months until the comet makes impact, managing the 24 hours news cycle and gaining the attention of social media obsessed public before it's too late proves shockingly comical. As the plot unfolds, the comet moves into Earth's atmosphere where it becomes visible to the eyes. It is in this moment that two competing beliefs come to life, one being just look up, and the other, don't look up. To look up is to acknowledge the reality of the situation and the coming doom. It is to fully believe. To not look up is to be void of the ensuing reality. The need not to worry, to have full dependency upon the administration and their hope to save the world. And I begin today with a question that I believe that's seen right here in this movie. What will it take to get the world to just look up? You see, even though this movie is absolutely full of satire and actually was a pretty good movie, it steps into our very moment in a beautiful way. You see, we are wrestling with two of the very same beliefs. Two challenging beliefs are coming our way. Don't look up and just look up. You see, to look up is to think of something bigger, something beyond ourselves, asking could there really be a one true God? You see, the idea of a God is really a great inconvenience as well, with many people saying, do we really even know there is a God? Can we even prove that there is a God? Are we even 100% sure that there is something greater? However, the opposite, to not look up, is to be consumed by self, to be struggling to answer some of life's toughest questions. See, there was a story of a philosopher, and as he was walking along a road with his head thrown back, he was gazing and studying at the stars, when all of a sudden, this philosopher fell into a well. And in his cries for help, a young girl came his way and began to help him out of the well. But before she left him, she gave him this one observation that while he was eager to know about the things in the sky, he failed to see what lay at his own feet. You see, I believe today that many of us are not like the philosopher, with our head up in the sky thinking on things above, but instead, we are focused right here, right now. You see, the problem that most of us are dealing with is a skepticism, even with an egotism that puts us at the center of the universe. We have our heads down. Questions revolve around ourselves. Life revolves around ourselves. We live in our own world. And we must ask the same question that we read in the synopsis. What will it take to get you to just look up? Here is my challenge this morning, is that you have to believe in something. You have to believe in something. And I ask you today, could there be something to believe in beyond yourself? Now why is belief in something important? Why does it matter? Well let's look at the opposite of belief in something is actually a belief in nothing. And we would call this and define this nihilism. What is nihilism? It is the rejection of all religious and moral principles. The belief that life is meaningless. 
This, my friends, is a fragile, fragile strategy. And if we really got to the root of it, I don't believe that many of us would fit into this category, that many of us would see that the world around us is actually, there's nothing. This is no point, that is meaningless. And all of us, I believe, wants the world to have meaning. I believe all of us wants our life to have meaning. And I believe that we would reject nihilism. We would say that the world does have meaning, that you do have a purpose. But I challenge you that the meaning and purpose of your life must be centered around a core belief. Today, we are going to be looking at Acts chapter 17. If you have your Bible, turn with me there. If you have your phone, get it out and stay along here with me. We are gonna be on a fun, fun ride going through Acts 17 and looking at a discussion that Paul had. Now, we're gonna be picking up in verse 16 here. And Paul finds himself in this chapter reasoning with the Greeks about what they believe and challenging them with a belief in the one true God. See, in Acts chapter 17, we are meeting Paul in the city of Athens. And he is dealing with a city that is consumed by idols and philosophies. It's consumed by idols and philosophies, starting in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And here's what I believe that Paul steps right into, that what you believe will always be evident. And it wasn't hard for Paul to see what they believed in. He's standing in Athens and he can look around him and he can see all the idols and he can see that their belief was clearly defined and evident. See, at the time, the Greek religion was a focus on mere human attributes and the power of nature. You could see temples, you could smell the sacrifices being made to the gods and the goddesses in Athens. It is the great worship of man. It's said that so many gods in Athens that it was easier to find a god than it was to find just another person. They say that there was possibly in the upwards of 30,000 statues and temples in reference to these gods. You see, whenever we see Athens, I believe some of us would be like, man, I wanna go, I wanna see it. We would say, whoa, look at this place. Look at the beauty, look at the temples, look at everything that they have built and created. But Paul is not wowed by what he sees. He is in woe, and his heart is broken. His heart is provoked. You see, Paul was provoked, he was distressed, he was troubled. See, he knew that idolatry was wrong. He could see that the gods that the Greeks were serving and the gods that they were proclaiming, that they were just mere men, replicas that could not provide any sort of life change. And he could see that they were seeking and that they were searching, that there was never just one God to satisfy. And I begin to wonder, What would Paul think if he saw our lives? Would Paul be deeply provoked? Would Paul be deeply troubled by our lives today? Do we have idols that are on display in our own lives? John Piper, he says an idol is anything that we can come to rely on for some blessing or help or guidance in the place of wholehearted reliance on the true living God. 
Now I can go through a whole list of idols, but idols are pretty much summed up into four types. Money, fame, pleasure, and power. Those are the four idols that have consumed our world today. And I can just ask a few questions to help you define what yours is. What do you daydream about? What drives you? What guides you to make certain choices? What do you value? You see, Paul is making the proclamation that these idols are anything that would separate you from God. When we begin to rely on these things to bring us joy, peace, happiness, we have replaced them for God. We no longer rely on God. Now, not everything that we love is an idol, but we can determine whether the good things in your life have replaced a good God. What is your idol today? What is your struggle? In verse 17, he continues on. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers conversed with him. Now, not only was Paul, could he see the idols of the town, but he was also hearing the philosophies. And we can see here that Aristotle, he defined philosophy as the science which considers truth. So the philosophies that Paul was hearing was what they defined as truth, how they define truth in their own life. Now it's really interesting. The Epicureans, they followed a guy by the name of Epicurus. Now get this, this is gonna absolutely blow your mind. Epicurus believed that happiness is the ultimate human pursuit. Huh, that sounds foreign. That pleasure is the most important pursuit of mankind and the source of all that is good. And he says that the one factor, the one factor that has the power to take away all your happiness, to take away all your joy, is anxiety about the future. Holy smokes. That's what he's saying. Now here is his cure. He literally defined the happiness cure. Here it is, you ready for it? God is nothing to fear. Death is nothing to worry about. It is easy to acquire the good things in life and it is easy to endure the bad things in life. What about death? No need to worry, this is all you got, enjoy it while you can. Imagine, this was the Epicureans. What about the Stoics? Well, the Stoics were really, really interesting. You see, they actually believed in a God, but like everything was God. Like this chair, or not this chair, <laughs> this is not a chair, just so you know, this is a podium. This podium has like its own spiritual being within it. The trees that you passed in had its own spiritual play. The chairs that you sit in, everything was God. Everything was God. But they, unlike the Stoics, it was not so much about pleasure, it was about human flourishing. That a life is complete when it has exhausted its potential for excellence. When a life has become all that it is meant to be. And how do you accomplish this? You follow your reason, or how we would say it, you follow your heart. That's the Stoics. Be self-sufficient, be unmoved by your inner feelings and outward circumstances. And this fanned the flames of pride that the emphasis was on their own abilities and it taught men that they did not need the help from anyone else, not even 
God. Can you see the connections? One says enjoy all things, one says endure all things. Pleasure and fulfillment is the number one goal. And we are addicts to them both. We are addicts to them both. While addiction is undoubtedly a biological disease, it is also in a more practical sense a process of becoming obsessed with one's own self and the primacy of one's urges and thoughts. What about God's? Don't worry. You do you. Don't think on these things. They do not interfere with your life. You are greater than the gods. That's what we hear, maybe what we would say. Romans 1, through 23 speaks directly into this moment. It says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You see, this text points to the essence of the problem beneath the outward display of idolatry and the various philosophies that we see. The images that Paul sees and the philosophies he is reasoning against center around man. You see, the foremost image of man that threatens to replace God is the image that we see in the mirror. We are lovers of self, which threatens continually our love of God. You see, you cannot exalt both man and God. One must be greater. This is our great philosophy. This has become our culture's great idolatry, to exalt our lives in self above God. Now, what was the response of the Epicureans and the Stoics to Paul's teachings? Some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time and nothing except telling or hearing something new. You see, some called him foolish. And maybe that's where you stand today. Maybe that is your argument. One true God, a Jesus, the Son of God, a resurrection of the dead, that is foolishness, Aaron. You are talking crazy, you are babbling. These are two very ideas that you may be struggling to reason with. And your argument may not look to the philosophies, but you may look to science and technology. Maybe that's where you look to explain the impossibility of the resurrection, to explain the impossibility of God. You see, both science and technology, I believe 100% have their place. But we are losing the capacity for awe and for acknowledging forces beyond our comprehension. Let me ask you just a couple of questions. Like, when was the last time you looked up at the stars? Like, when was the last time that you did that? There's a place in Grayson, Kentucky called Grayson Lake, and it becomes like almost a really dark night sky 
We love to camp out there, and if everybody does it really well and, you know, turns off their awning lights instead of, you know, blaring it all over the place, we can begin to see our eyes, see something beyond just what you may see with all the light. The light begins to move away, and before you know it, what was just a few stars now is hundreds and hundreds of stars that you can see in your view, to the point that some nights it's, it is so clear that you can even see pieces of the Milky Way. When was the last time you just looked up at the stars? You can't look up at the stars and say, wow, that's really cool science. No, you look at the stars and you are in awe. How is it possible that we could be right here on Earth at the most perfect distance from the sun, orbiting in the Milky Way, in the universe, just a small piece of the universe here, and not begin to think and question that maybe there's something bigger than just me? Let me really connect with you. What about the love of a mother? Give me science that explains the love of a mother that would lay down their life for their son or for their daughter. Explain that one to me. You see, there are moments all throughout our lives that we have experienced and seen that science and technology will never, ever be able to explain. Let me say it like this. Since the enlightenment, are we better off? Have we really progressed in life? Ryan Holiday, he wrote a book called Silence is the Key, and in it he says this. Are we really to say that a simple peasant who piously believed in God, who worshiped daily in a beautiful cathedral that must have seemed a wondrous glory to the greatness of the Holy Spirit, was worse off than us because he or she lacked our technology or understanding of evolution? What about if we told a Zen Buddhist from Japan in the 12th century that in the future everyone could count on greater wealth and longer lives, but that in most cases, these gifts would be followed by a feeling of utter purposelessness and dissatisfaction. Do you think that they would trade places with us? Because that does not sound like progress. With our enlightenment, we have thrown out all spirituality. But we see that's just one response. The other response is that they were eager to hear more. See, there's still many people that are still seeking and searching. That there's things you can't explain. There's things in your life that happen that you just have questions about. Or you've tried everything that the Epicureans and the Stoics have done and you have still felt empty and cold. So you're still looking for more. You see, belief in self is not enough. It will always lead you seeking for more. There is no peace to the mind that thinks of nothing but itself. How many more people do you need to exalt you? How much more money do you need to make? How many more cars do you need to buy? How many more homes do you need to have? How much more power do you need? The answer is always the same. Just one more. As we have all found, one of the biggest problems is that pleasure and happiness and fulfillment is impossible to sustain and maintain. So Paul, in their ability to give him more space to speak, 
he jumps at the challenge. And we pick up in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this as I proclaim to you. So he is standing, this temple, Areopagus, he could see all of Athens. You could see the statues and the, and the temples and the sacrifices being made. And he speaks directly to him and says, you are very religious, as I believe he would say the same to us. But in their ignorance, the Greeks had erected an altar to whatever God they might have inadvertently left out of their pantheon. You see, until we come to God, we are going to be chasing something that is unknown. And Paul masterfully uses this altar as an opportunity to share the one true God and his words still speak to us today. He says this about the one true God. He is the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. You see, Paul proclaims that there is one true God, and this one true God, he is creator, he is provider, and he is ruler. Let me tell you something, you were created by loving and an affection God. It is not because of randomness, it's not just because molecules just absentmindedly came together just by chance that you are here. You were created. You are loved. Everything that you see points back to a creator. Everything that you see points back to a creator. See, for the Greeks, though, this idea of God was not challenging. You could see that there were plenty of other gods that they were worshiping, so one more God would not have made a difference. But what Paul is proclaiming is that this is the one true God. All of your other gods are worthless. All of your other gods are meaningless. All of your other gods will not change or transform you or give you what you are seeking and searching for. This is the one true God. For us, Paul's words challenged that we are not God. It fulfills the need to believe in something greater than ourselves. Paul is calling us to believe in the highest power, to believe in the one true God. Now the trick to this is, is that to believe in the one true God, you are believing in something that is unseen. And what everything in you is that you will then have to reject your intellect and your immediate observational experience and accept something bigger, something beyond yourselves. Paul boldly affirmed in the beginning God that God made the world and everything in it and that he is Lord of all that he has made. It is God who gives us what he needs, what we need, life, breath, and all things. 
God is the source of every good and perfect gift. He gave us life and he sustains the life that he has given us. And you are not in control. God is ruler over all things. It is not the power of man, but the government of God that determines the rise and fall of the nations. You see, the language for accepting God as a higher power, this language for accepting God as our higher power is about letting him in to your heart. Let me share with you a story. So today, whenever I come to Moorhead, I have one guy, man, he is just some of the greatest help for us at our campus. His name is Eric Bush. And Eric has an incredible, incredible story. Eric, he dealt with drug addiction, alcohol addiction for many, many years. But let us get ready to celebrate this. Him and his wife, he has been clean for six and a half years and his wife has been clean for five and a half years. Come on, let's celebrate them this morning. Eric said I was going for a year. And look at him now, if you could see him now, what God is doing in his life. But part of his recovery process was actually going through the 12 Steps program. And if anybody has ever heard of the 12 Steps program, there is a key part of the 12 Steps. And you may hear it said that I have a belief in the God of my own understanding, a belief in a higher power. And I begin to ask Eric, I said, Eric, why is this so important? Why is this so important? And this was his response that he gave me. He said, belief is a higher power, and a higher power is important because we have lost control of our lives and have done a poorly, man poorly, job, poorly job managing it, if we were able to manage it at all. We keep seeking to fill the God-sized hole with sin, with drugs, alcohol, sex, food, and all the things. And when we have tried everything and it has continued to lead to misery and more misery, we have to finally understand that there is something that can help us stay sober. A path has been laid out, a 12-step meeting, a support group, church fellowship, Jesus, something, a higher power can begin to help us manage our lives. But he says this, for me personally, I know my purpose is what God has in store for me. If it wasn't for God, my higher power, I would still be mismanaging my life and messing it up even more. I have to believe that my higher power is something that I can latch onto, one whose path doesn't include the use of substance to help me escape my reality. Belief in a higher power is coming to terms with reality. Thank you, Eric, for sharing that with us. So therefore, admitting that there is something bigger than you ought to, that there is an important breakthrough, is an important breakthrough to believe there's something greater than yourself. It means that an addict finally understands that they are not God, that they are not in control and really never have been. And by the way, none of us are. Could there be something greater to believe in Paul says, yes. Paul challenges us to believe in the one true God, the creator, the ruler, the provider. In verse 27, he continues, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each of us. 
For in him we live and move and have our being. As some as even your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. And I just wanna encourage you today that this God that Paul is talking about, he is not found in temples, he is not found in a statue, but he is found close to you. So many of you have been seeking and searching for something. You've tried fame, you've tried money, you've tried pleasure, you've tried power. All of those things trying to bring meaning and purpose and fulfillment to your life. And Paul says, do not seek these things, but seek first God. When you seek him, you will find him, and you will find him right by your side. He is the living God not a distant deity, therefore seek God and come to know him in truth. Paul continues on in verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance, God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man who he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. See, Paul, in his final words, he points to our need for a savior, he points to the savior, and what does he save us from? He saves us from ourselves. He saves us from our own sin, from our own shame, our own guilt. He saves us, but also he saves us for a future. Because in these final words, you are not without hope for a future because God sent his son. Over the past few weeks, I'm telling you, it feels like our whole church staff has been under attack in some form or fashion. And two weeks ago, I had the, uh, it was a very hard week for me and my family. We lost my grandfather. My grandfather, he was 82 years old. If you met Talmadge, some people called him Sam Rayburn. You were in for a real, real treat. He wore overalls that came to about his calf, and that was kind of his way to travel. Whenever, he, whenever my granny was alive, he literally, we said, invented the man purse because he would literally carry her purse with him uh, and her wherever they went. He had this trick at church to where he, every time, he basically, every Sunday, would carry a pack of gum in his pockets. And all the kids knew that he was the guy with the gum. But in order to get a piece of gum, he had this little way of spreading the gospel that he would require them to say, Jesus loves me. Not out of a con, but out of a reminder that Jesus loves you. And he would give him a piece of gum. Just uh, last Saturday, we um, had his funeral and his arrangements. And I got to speak his funeral. That was one of the greatest moments uh, of my life. But all the way leading up, he was taken to a hospice care center. And I don't know if you've ever been to a hospice care center, but it was very different from when my granny passed away. It was cleaning out the house. It was going through everything. And this was very different. You're in a hospice room and all you see around you, there was a chair some clothes, and a couple photos. That was it, family and friends. Let me tell you something. In the last moments of his life, you can still be able to define what was most important to my grandpa. 
It was not fame, it was not pleasure, it was not power, and it was not money. You can see two things that he loved more than any, well, three, I'm sorry. He loved his farm, he loved his family, and he loved Jesus. And in those last moments of his life, that was most evident. And I'm standing there in the casket with my cousins, my aunts, my mom and dad, and that casket is the final goodbye. Everybody else is gone, it's just family standing there. And this is the moment that I want you to step into. Because it's in this moment that faith becomes evident. Faith becomes real. Faith then defines what you believe because when that closes, you have to make a choice. Do you believe that that was it? Then you can hear this line, Papal Ray sure did live a good life. Papal Ray lived a faithful life. That's a big difference because to live a good life is to be focused on what you did to help yourself and those maybe around you. To live a faithful life is to believe and to trust that there is one God and that God sent a, a son named Jesus to die and to save you. And in that moment when the casket shut, I was sad that he was gone. But there is a joy that comes within you that says this is not the end. There is a hope. There is a hope that surpasses all understanding. There is a hope that surpasses all that you may see and all that you may be consumed by. Is there a future beyond what we see? Paul steps directly into this moment. You are no longer ignorant, he says. The unknown God has been now made known to you. And this is how beautiful God is, that he not left you where you were, but that he came to meet you through his son. Paul summarized the clear evidence of God's grace. For centuries, God was patient with man's sin and ignorance. This does not mean that men were not guilty. We were so guilty, but um, that God held back divine wrath. And in due time, God sent a savior, and now he commands all men to repent of their foolish ways. In verse 32, you have to ask, so Paul gives this incredible sermon. He identifies the idols, he identifies the philosophies. How is it received? In verse 32, it says, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some joined him and believed among whom also, also were Dionysius and the, the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with him. What was their response? Three things. Some rejected the message, some reflected on the message, and some received the message. And today, this is what is so beautiful, is that you get to do the same. I can't con you, I can't say anything else in the same way that Paul doesn't say anything else, but you have to make the choice of what you will believe in, and you have to believe in something. Will you reject it? The good news of salvation. 
Will you reflect it? That's okay. Or will today you receive it? And I wanna encourage you to do three things as we come to a close here with all heads bowed all across all of our locations. I want you to do three things. The first thing is I want you to take the next 10 seconds and I want you to think about what you believe. 10 seconds. What do you believe? You have to believe in something. What will you choose to believe in? So let me tell you, there is a God who loves you. There's a God who created you. There's a God who sent his son to save you. And listen, me and you both know you have tried everything. The second thing that I want you to do is that you have believed many of you maybe have been seeking and searching for God and you still feel lost. What Paul proclaims as God being near to you, you see as God has not been close at all, but God has been distant. Here's the prayer I want you to pray right now. Right now, if that is you, I want you to pray this right now. God, come and find me. God, come and find me. I wanna share a story of a woman during a dark time in her life, a woman complained that she had prayed over and over, God, help me find you, but had gotten nowhere. A Christian friend suggested to her that she might change her prayer to, God, come and find me. After all, you are the good shepherd who goes looking for the lost sheep. She concluded when she shared this story that the only reason that I can tell you this story is because he did. And we believe the same is true for you today, that if you call out their prayer, God, come and find me, that his fear will rest upon you. He will no longer feel distance, but he will appear near to you. And the third thing I wanna challenge you to do is to receive that message, to be like the two in our story who heard the gospel presented and received the good news of salvation. You can do that today. It is through what Paul says to repent. Now let me show you what repent looks like. This is the way that your life is going right now. You are moving with chasing your fame, chasing power, chasing pleasure, chasing money, and repent literally means to turn to turn, that is the old way of which I am living, to turn to the new way that brings you life. To repent and believe. And this is the life that Christ has called us to live, that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives through me. And today, you can receive that. Scripture says that if you believe in your heart, as we just spoke about, to receive God in your heart, to receive Jesus in your heart, and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that you will be saved. Now, I just wanna take a moment here. If that's you today, would you just say this prayer with me? Say, Jesus, forgive me of the idols that I have chased in my life. 
forgive me of the sins that I have committed. I believe, Jesus, that you came for me. I believe that, Jesus, you died for me. And, Jesus, I believe that you got up out of a grave for me. And, Jesus, help me all the days of my life to follow you. With all heads bowed at all locations, here's what we want to do. If that was you today, would you please just lift up your hands so that we could just be praying for you and that we could celebrate this new salvation that you are walking in. Praise God for that hand. You are not alone. Amen. Amen. In closing, you have to believe in something. The world, it cries for you to believe in yourself and the idols that surround you. But I challenge you in the same way that Paul does to look up, to find belief and meaning in the one true God, to find peace in the forgiveness that he has given through Jesus and the resurrection and the hope for a future beyond what we see. Would you pray with me this morning? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us into your house. And Lord, we thank you so much that your word still hits right where we are today. And God, that your salvation and your goodness and your grace, Lord, Lord, that is still alive and moving. Lord, we pray that today that we may put aside our idols, Lord, that we would repent, and Lord, that we would believe. And that today that we would live, not for ourselves, but for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.